You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Hey folks, just a bit of extra information here for you before we get into today's episode. Uh, We are about 40 episodes into this new venture of ours, the DU Podcast, and we're we're constantly trying different things and and wanting to make sure that we stay in touch with you, the listeners, and are responsive to some of your interest and some of your your, your comments. So I want to make you aware of some additional information that we are providing related to the podcast. First off, you can find transcripts for some of the episodes, uh, all of the episodes that we've produced. You can find those at www.ducks.org slash DU podcast. You can also email us, email the, uh, the, the DU podcast crew. Let us know what you think about the shows. If you have a particular suggestion for the type of material you'd like to hear, or topics you'd like to uh, hear us discuss, you can send those suggestions and those comments to us at dupodcast at ducks.org. That's dupodcast at ducks.org. So get in touch with us. Let us know what you think about the podcast. Provide us with your suggestions, and who knows? We might discuss one of those on a, on a future episode. So now let's get into today's show. In this episode, we're going to ask a, a pretty basic question on the surface, and it's a question that uh, that many hunters may actually have wondered as they're out in the out in the field. And that the question there is: Are the ducks and geese that we harvest over decoys any different? body condition wise from the ducks and geese that make up the larger population. 
uh, to help us flesh out this question in a little bit more detail and discuss some of the uh, management implications of it, we're going to welcome into the show Dr. Drew Fowler. Dr. Drew Fowler is a is the waterfowl and migratory game bird research scientist with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. Drew, welcome into the show. Hey, Mike. Thanks so much for having me today. Appreciate it. Great to have you on here. One of the neat things about this podcast is that we are able to reach out to uh, to our scientists, to our, our science partners, uh, conservation partners from across North America, and 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 share the expertise that you guys have. A lot of you guys are the ones uh, that are that are doing a lot of the work. That you do a lot of the work in your current position. You've done a lot of the work uh, in your graduate studies that that you've done, kind of leading you to this to on your career path. And so we're we're fortunate to be able to reach out to you and uh, involve you in these discussions. So thanks a lot for being here. And I think I want to start out by giving you an opportunity to introduce yourself to our audience. Tell us a little bit about your personal and professional background. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm glad to be on the show. I'm glad to get the opportunity to, to talk with you and the Ducks Unlimited community. Um, like you said, I'm, I'm at Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources right now. Um, I started that position just over a year ago, uh, November of 2018. And I, I moved up here after I finished my PhD work at um, University of Missouri uh, with Dr. Lisa Webb. And um, and Missouri was not my home either. Uh, prior to that, I was at the university, or I was at a Louisiana State University um, with Dr. Sammy King, and we did some research on wetland management. And uh, I grew up in Texas, so for the last 10 years, I've been bouncing further and further north. Uh, and uh, I think right now between uh, my cold tolerance and my wife and my kids' <laughs> tolerances, we hope that we don't move any further north. Uh, but we've really been enjoying Wisconsin, um, thinking about opportunities to do uh, research across the state, uh, and so it's been a, a real pleasure. Now, you are the migratory game bird research scientist there. Uh, are you the – uh, you know, I, whenever I think about uh, waterfowl biologists within a given state, I, I usually use the generic term uh, "state waterfowl biologist." But that's not. But don't you? Do you have a counterpart that serves that role? Yeah. So the beautiful thing about Wisconsin DNR, the thing that I think that's really cool about it, is that Wisconsin DNR recognizes that there's strengths in um, having people make management decisions, and that there's strengths in having people think more exclusively about research-oriented questions, but then not keeping those people separate, but but combining their work together to help one inform the other, particularly the research to inform the management. Uh, and so we, we don't just have a singular waterfowl biologist position in the state of Wisconsin like some other agencies do. Uh, we actually have a state waterfowl biologist, Taylor Finger, uh, who's been in the position for uh, a couple of years now. Um, and uh, and then I'm the waterfowl and migratory game bird research scientist. So Taylor and I work really closely together on thinking about what our management objectives and goals are for the state and then how we can prioritize research to fill in the gaps that are going to make more informed decisions for, for management. And that comes, you know, in a slew of, of different priorities ranging from harvest management, uh, harvest regulations, but also to our habitat management. And so it's really, it's cool to have another counterpart in the state, in the state agency, to work together alongside each other and, and make these decisions. Yeah, that is an effective framework. I, I personally, I, I didn't realize that about your state, but that's a, that's a good deal. Uh, I've met Taylor, met Taylor on a couple of occasions, and I, and I was just trying to square that in my mind, you know, what the relationship was between you two. And so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Taylor is a great guy. He focuses a lot on season regulations um, and, and, and how he can implement 
harvest management as well as habitat management on the ground. And I get to think about those projects that research projects that help them make smarter decisions. It popped up on my radar here recently as a as a topic that we might want to discuss on the on the podcast because I saw a publication from you. Uh, it was a publication in the Journal of Wildlife Management. It came out earlier this year titled Condition Bias of Decoy Harvested Light Geese During the Conservation Order. And we're going to get into the details of that. But you know, this was, I think you've referenced, this was part of your PhD work. And so on, on, at the most basic level, again, we're asking the question, are the birds that we harvest over decoys any different condition-wise from those that, are, uh, on the, uh, that make up the larger population? So... What I want you do, to do, uh, Drew, is uh, is help us understand this research research question a little a little more. Uh, and and there's a there's a gee whiz aspect to this question, just from a hunter standpoint. Of are these birds different? And it just kind of stands to reason that maybe the birds that we're harvesting might be a little more or over decoys might be a little more vulnerable in some way or another. And so why might that be? And, and you've actually, of course, through this research, done a lot of uh, thinking on this. So tell us a little about a little bit about this research and uh, uh, just help us understand it. Sure. You know, and it might be helpful just to provide some context up front about some of the, the researchers that have been thinking about this for a while, going back to the 80s, about just the general concept of a condition bias in birds. So, so yeah, when we say bias, we, we're, we're talking about – tell us, tell us what you mean when you say bias. A bias would – I mean just a more simpler term would be is there a difference? Is there – if you think about uh, birds existing on a bell curve, right, that you know, if you're familiar with a statistical bell curve – We've got the majority of individuals, the mean of the individuals in the center of that bell, and a bias would be, do we see birds that exist on the fringes of that bell curve being the predominant type of bird that shows up in the bag? You know, I, in thinking myself when I started this project with uh, my co-authors, we had to do a lot of digging into, okay, what's been done already in terms of uh, this difference in body condition between um, uh, birds that might be decoyed versus um, what's in that in the in the population, and you know, surprisingly, the the researchers that started thinking about this for waterfowl actually were inspired by some earlier studies that looked at differences between um, small red-winged blackbirds, and uh, some of the work the work that occurred in the late 70s, early 80s showed that if they trapped birds, red-winged blackbirds, with decoys those birds ended up having higher body mass as opposed to if they just set up these, they're called mist nets, which are almost invisible nets to birds that they would haphazardly fly into. So some type of more um, uh, random sample, if, if you um, would allow, to, to compare the differences. And they found that the birds that were trying to fly into traps that had decoys there uh, had lower body weight than um, these birds that were just randomly flying into the nets. And so the authors started thinking about, okay, well, what, how might this transfer over into to waterfowl? I mean, here we are hunting uh, over water or on land with, with decoys. Do we see similar trends? And so there were some studies in the, in the uh, early um, 80s that looked at differences in mallards on birds that, had, um, that were caught over, um, over bait versus not over bait. And were there differences between those two types of um, uh, groups. And particularly what was interesting is uh, some scientists called, uh, last names by Weatherford and Greenford, and uh, Greenwood, I'm sorry, looked at um, whether or not there were, that mallards, if they were shot over decoys, had larger, had lower body mass relative to birds 
um, that uh, weren't shot over decoys, if they were, say, jump shot or pass shot. And what they found in those mallards is that the birds that were shot over decoys uh, just had pure overall lower body mass. And that was really interesting, and that started getting the gears turning. And the question was, well, why, why, are, why is this occurring? And their hypothesis was that the birds that are in poorer body condition because they are energetically starved, might make themselves more susceptible or vulnerable to decoys because they're more willing to take a risk uh, to decoys because they energetically demand it, uh, if that makes sense. Yeah, one thing that I'll I'll clarify uh, for some of our listeners, uh, and I think you'll get into this in more detail, but we're using kind of body condition and body mass in some way sort of synonymously and yeah that mm-hmm. that's not exactly the the way it is your body condition can mm-hmm. be measured across through a number of uh of a number of variables if sure uh but but body mass uh, it has been found to be highly correlated with whatever metric we use for body condition is that do i have that right absolutely you got that right and that's and that's really important because as these studies advanced, they started trying to get more specific, going from just a difference in mass, like you referred to, to uh, energetic levels. So say levels of lipids and levels of protein, uh, because those are the things that um, fuel these birds during migration. Uh, they fuel them for reproduction. And so that, that's going to get more at the condition uh, rather than just, say, the sheer mass. Yeah, like true condition, like. You know, but invariably, we want as researchers, we want to be able to, we want to, an index. Well, ideally, we'd like to have an index that is highly correlated with uh, an index that's easy to measure, easy to obtain, uh, and that is highly correlated with some more sophisticated, more accurate representation of the true body condition. Right. Right. Yeah, it does a decent job of that, but it, but like you, like you said it is uh, it doesn't get at the specifics. And there's also, there's all kinds of ways that body mass in and of itself could be skewed uh, or, or could be non-representative of actual condition. So what if the bird, that if you're just measuring body mass, what if the bird has a crop full of corn or an esophagus full of corn? Or what if it's just a larger bodied bird? The body mass is going to be inflated. So w- there are ways that we can account for and scale uh, body size um, uh, so that we, we get a more accurate um, reading on these things. But we did start to, throughout the 80s and the 90s, transition to saying just instead of just body mass, what are, are there other ways, if they're dead, can we, that we can assess in terms of their energetic levels like lipids and proteins. Um, but for a long time, we didn't have that luxury. Um, but what was really unique is that starting in the mid-80s and the late 90s is we realized, okay, there's probably a condition bias. Um, are there better ways to quantify it than just pass shooting or jump shooting birds versus the decoy birds? And so uh, we did work on SCOP, not me particularly, but other people have done work on SCOP where they would uh, take the body mass and the body size of the birds. So they'd have some type of body size adjusted mass and they would measure these birds while they caught them um, and banded them. And then they were able to assess, okay, do the recovery rates of these birds vary based off of the body mass? And sure enough, these birds that were in poor condition, indexed by lower body mass, were recovered at higher rates than birds that had higher body masses. Drew, do, do you know if if in any of those studies, if they ever followed up the subsequent year, like I, I would imagine the recovery rate that you're talking about, about right there is the direct recovery rate, which is the recoveries that occur in the hunting season immediately after banding, right? Did they look to, has anyone ever looked to see if if those, the recovery rates in years, in 
way subsequent to the banding if that kind of if that same trend holds so some of these studies like you said i mean they're they're relatively short term studies but they're not just single year studies so i'm thinking of one that looked at scop um from birds that were banded and recovered from 1983 to 1986. So we've had a couple of years there, so that's not just going to be direct recoveries, but it's going to be those indirect recoveries as well, recoveries that occur in a year past the original banding year. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we've got some metric of uh, temporal variability there with our recovery rates. So it's not just in the given year. Uh, tell us a little bit about your study, because uh, you actually studied geese, most of the other uh, studies that you've just talked about were were ducks and you studied geese and so tell us about that right and so the idea behind this study was that the main one of the big differences between our ducks and our geese is in their their life history and, and their length of life and so generally uh, ducks um, have much shorter lifespans than geese um, geese can have uh, a life history that might take them um, upwards of 20 years um, Maybe for snow geese, the particular ones that I studied, I think they can, the average lifespan might be uh, eight or nine years, but it's really common to see birds 12 to 13 years old, whereas ducks have a much shorter life history cycle. Um, and so there's going to be, um, there's usually more um, heterogeneity in the types of birds within a population on a short, quick life history continuum as opposed to birds that stretch out and have a much longer life history. Heterogeneity. We're talking about differences across individuals, right? Yeah, yeah. A fancy word just to say variability um, okay. or a distribution. We scientists like the fancy words. <laughs> right. Sometimes you got to get called out for using fancy words when you could just say they're different. <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> but so geese, um, uh, they have longer life histories. Um, and this concept of condition bias has, has not really been thoroughly vetted uh, on longer-lived species like geese. We looked at this one time uh, in the late, or really the mid-90s um, with geese where we tried to see if there were differences in greater snow geese uh, between birds caught over bait versus not caught over bait. And, and that, was, that occurred during the fall, and uh, the researchers there didn't see a difference between the two. That, uh, it didn't matter if birds were on bait or not. They they tended to have the same um, body condition. The impetus for this study was it was kind of unique, particularly for light geese, because if if your uh, listeners are familiar with, with snows and Ross geese, those are considered light geese and fall into the light goose conservation. And these two species are birds that we have, since 1999, uh, set a particular conservation order out in order to help reduce the overall population to more sustainable levels due to perceived overabundance. Um, and we and that's basically that's the spring harvest period. That's the what spring we're harvest. About there. Yeah, and so uh, if you talk to one of my co-authors, Mark Vertiska, he'll be very emphatic that this actually isn't a hunting season, right? And he'll distinguish that between being a conservation order uh, because there's a particular purpose behind why the spring harvest exists. Um, and so, nonetheless, we have shot a lot of birds. Uh, we increased our birds. Uh, since the initiation of the conservation order. Um, uh, but we haven't seen the type of response to uh, declining populations that we hoped. And there's a lot of good reasons for that. Uh, largely, our harvest rates are so low, and we haven't been able to um, maintain an increased harvest with the increase in population growth. Uh, and so we got to a point where we just got satiated as hunters. We couldn't put more hunters on the landscape 
than uh, that we really needed to in order to change, achieve effective harvest rates. So meanwhile, though, we, we are still shooting more geese than we ever have before. Um, and the question is, if you've ever sat out in a goose spread and you've spent two hours setting up your spread or longer and you don't get any response, you have big flocks of geese look at you and keep going off, and then all of a sudden you've got one guy drop out of the sky and come into your spread. The question is, who is this guy who decided to come and make the decision right, as opposed to the uh, the 500 that just completely flew past me, looked and said no thanks and left? Um, and so what we tried to do in this uh, research is evaluate differences in body condition between the birds that hunters are primarily shooting via decoy harvest um, and birds uh, that exist at the same time on, in, the, in the same landscapes but aren't responding to hunters. Um, and so what we tried to do is in, we had two field seasons in 2015 and 2016. We paired um, sampling events in Arkansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Dakota um, between decoy shot birds by hunters um, and then simultaneously on the same days, um, within the same proximity of location, we would find loafing or roosting groups of snow geese, either on land or over water, sneak up to them, stand up to flush the birds up into the air, and then indiscriminately shoot into the flock to as best as possible serve as a representative sample of that population at that given time. And so um, we had birds um, from these two groups and we were able to then, after the field season, uh, come back to the lab, and then we could analyze these birds for not just the body mass, but also the particulars of their actual um, proximate body condition. And what I mean by proximate body condition, I mean their total body lipids and their total body proteins. Those are the two energetics that really drive these birds during spring migration. And so we were able to quantify those data and then make some comparisons between these two groups. And so just to clarify, we have the decoy shot birds that sort of represents the, the normal harvest. And then we have the birds that you guys crept up on and then you shot as they flushed. And the idea being that those that you're, that you're jump shooting, they're going to be sort of randomly collected from, they're going to be random collections of individuals from that larger population. And then you're going to compare those two. Um, and then the, the proximal analysis work that you guys do, uh, we probably don't have time to go into all the details of this, but it actually is, it will be surprising to a lot of folks to learn how you do that. And you actually, uh, you, uh, to process those birds, there's some details here, but basically it amounts <laughs> to freezing those birds, I think, and then you, you grind them up and that, and so you are analyzing the entire composition of the bird, less the feathers. I think you take the feathers off. Less and the take feathers, out the, yeah. So, so we, um, we exactly, we, we shave the feathers off the birds so that our protein estimates are indicative of the muscular and cardiac or cardiac protein uh, of the bird. Um, but feathers are made out of protein too. And so we wanted to think about, but they're labile. They can't, um, or I'm sorry, they're, they're, um, they're stationary. They can't change. They can't be reabsorbed by the bird for other purposes. So we unlike wanted to think muscle, about which can unlike be, your muscle, muscles yeah, can't exactly. be catabolized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, so there was a process there. I'll just say that it's, it's, um, for every bird that you shoot, it's a reminder in the back of your head that you're going to later have to process that bird in the lab. And so That's right, yeah. we shot just under, I think about a thousand birds for this or collected a thousand birds cumulatively for this study. So we spent a lot of time, uh, dissecting birds. So you have a, a good respect for birds at the end of that study. You and your dog are a team. 
Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. So we, we have the study sort of laid out. We probably don't need to go into any additional detail. So, Drew, uh, what did we learn? Yeah, so on the whole, what we found is that birds that were shot over decoys in all four states um, had higher, uh, I'm sorry, had lower lipid levels relative to the birds that we shot via jump shooting. Uh, so less so, fat. We're talking about so lipids. We're talking so about fats. We looked at differences between protein, which is in the muscle, um, and lipids, which is the fat. If you ever, you know, cleaned a bird, it's that um, yellow adip- adipose tissue that's in between the skin and, and the breast muscle. And um, decoy shot birds, on the whole, um, had lower lipid reserves than our um, decoy or our jump shot counterparts. And this was really interesting because it was also across, we saw the same trends across age. Uh, both adults and juveniles had differences uh, in the same direction, right, between decoy and jump shot birds. It's important to clarify between those two groups because, uh, because you know, the, you would naturally expect the juvenile birds to, um, to, to have less fat reserves than would say adults. So you have to parse out those, uh, th- those two groups because there would naturally be some sort of, uh, some sort of difference there. Yeah, it's important to separate those out um, between adults and juveniles because their, their body sizes are different. But what's really interesting is that you were all, if, we're, if you're hunters, you're familiar and would totally expect that juvenile birds would decoy more readily um, than adults. And that's maybe not necessarily because of a condition bias, but because of a naivety bias. And so they don't have that experience to know and pick out a spread and say, ah, let's not go there. And so what was unique is that we saw differences in the, um, the uh, extent of um, body condition biases in uh, juveniles relative to adults. So uh, put it another way is that there was greater separation in the lipid levels between decoy and jump shot adults than there were decoy and jump shot um, juveniles. 
And that's interesting to me because um, from a um, from a conservation standpoint, um, we know that our target uh, is adult females, that if we want to reduce the population, we need to be targeting adult females. And so um, not only does other research point to us saying that, yeah, we shoot more juveniles than adults, and so that uh, impedes our ability to be effective, but what we're seeing here in our research is that the adults that are coming into decoys are substantially lower body condition than, say, um, counterparts shot by jump sh- shooting. And so that, to me, is really interesting. Yeah, and, and we'll we'll touch on why that's interesting in, in a bit more detail here detail in a second. But I can imagine some listeners uh, saying, wait a minute, I've shot lots of snow geese over decoys, and I can show you hundreds of geese that are just loaded with fat. And so I think the important thing is we're not saying or your research isn't saying that every bird shot over over a decoy spread is is in poor condition. There are there definitely are going to be some birds shot over decoys that are in fantastic condition and there's going to be some birds you know, shot that you jump shoot that are probably going to be in very poor condition. But when you take the averages across those two groups uh, what your what your results are showing is that on average the body condition of those that were shot over decoys was was l- lower than the ones that you jump shot. That's exactly right, and it's important. I mean, it goes it goes back to our fancy word heterogeneity, right? Uh, it's it's the the variability across um, uh, across the population. And, but there's two important components to to point out here. One is you're exactly right. You can shoot fat ducks. Uh, there's a famous researcher. Named Dave Ankney, and he wrote in a paper back in the 80s. He said, "Look, if if decoy hunting resulted in only shooting skinny ducks, I would quit hunting." And I think that's a very common sentiment: is that um, what we're not saying is that there's no fat ducks that come into your decoys. And and importantly, we're not even saying that ducks or, or geese, in my case, that respond to decoys don't have fat. They absolutely do. And they could, you could uh, shoot a, a goose. It would come into your spread, shoot it, dissect it, and be like, "Man, this got a lot of fat on it." But the question is, how do you know how much fat that has relative to the bird you didn't shoot, right? And so, what we're saying, what our research is pointing to, is that birds that aren't responding to decoys have even more fat uh, than the birds coming into decoys. But of course, there's that variability, and of course, there's a lot of dynamics into. Um, what shows up in your bag? Are you shooting singles all day long, or you have you invested the time and to, to find the right location and invested in the spread to deceive a really large group of birds, and you're waiting to pull the shot until birds are on the ground and you still got birds coming in the air, right? Then you've got a little bit more of um, um, a dynamic there where you have deceived a large group of birds, and you might expect an even greater amount of variability in the condition from the birds that first landed to later in the in the flock. You studied, you collected both lesser snow geese and Ross's geese, and you found this same trend for both of those species, right? Absolutely, yep. And then there are a couple of other, uh, quite a few other things that are of interest in your results. Uh, we're not going to be able to get into all of those. One of the things that I did want to mention here was the... Um, the lipid content, uh, the fat content, after adjusted for body size and all that, it showed it, it increased with latitude. And so talk about that a little bit. So keep in mind, we, we started in Arkansas, the furthest uh, south state in our, our study, and we moved with the birds as they were moving north in migration. So we um, uh, uh, sequentially then moved to Missouri, then Nebraska, and then South Dakota. And 
so we expect that ducks and geese during this time of the year um, are spending an enormous amount of energy migrating. Um, and they're not only they're, they're thinking about a lot of things. They're thinking about the energy that they need to make these big physical movements. But then they're also beginning to think preemptively about what's it going to take to pull off a successful clutch in the in the upcoming summer. Um, and so it is expected that these birds are piling on more fat reserves as they can in order to utilize those stores later on in migration. And so we, we saw this trend uh, in our data is that the further north we went, the larger these geese got because they were storing more and more lipid reserves. Um, but what was unique in our study is that as we were, again, looking at the differences in fat levels between uh, decoy and jump shot birds is that the difference between those decoy and jump shot birds began to get larger and larger as we moved further north. And so what's what we're seeing there is that decoy birds, say in South Dakota, that are showing up to spreads, they're, they're still gaining weight from Arkansas to South Dakota. They're still gaining weight, but not. The key is not at nearly the pace as these other birds that we sampled from jump shooting. So, so just some some ballpark numbers. The difference in lipid levels between decoy and jump shot birds in Arkansas was around 30 grams, uh, whereas by the time we got to South Dakota, the difference between the two was 65 grams. Uh, and when we were looking cumulatively at the total amount of uh, body lipids on a bird, might be somewhere around. 200 and 220 in our study, 65 grams is, is a pretty significant difference in terms of what you might be able to carry with you or not. Yeah, tell us why this matters from from a conservation perspective and a conservation management perspective. Well, I think I think biases in body condition or differences in body condition among the population is important for us to consider as managers, kind of on a couple of different folds. And the first question we have to think about is, okay. We're seeing differences in body condition, but what does what does that mean? Does that mean anything physiologically or, or biologically? And the question I think we first have to ask is, is there a link between body condition and, say, survival? Or is there a link between body condition and reproduction? And um, the results of those questions are, are an emphatic yes. We've, not just in my study, because my study didn't look at particularly can we quantify differences in survival in this study? We didn't do that. But a lot of other studies have shown these relationships between um, poor body condition and, say, lower uh, survival rates. Um, and, and so we know that that link exists. And then we've also seen linkages where birds that start off in low body condition, say, in spring, or have pressure, high hunting pressure put on them um, during um, uh, the spring conservation order in the greater snow goose population in the Atlantic flyway, there was research that was sh- that showed that as they increased and ramped up the pressure in the greater snow goose population, reproduction began to wane. And so there are these the relationships, physiological relationships, life cycle relationships that are linked between body condition and reproduction. And let me ask you about the survival element there. We're, we're t- this study was conducted in, uh, during the conservation order in the spring, and so the the idea that you're laying out here is that these lower these birds that are in lower body condition are the ones that we're harvesting uh, more likely to harvest over decoys, and those are the ones because of this relationship between body condition and survival. These are the ones that are more more likely. Doesn't mean they're going to, but uh, they're more likely to die than would be the ones in in good good condition. Now, and I'm, I'm familiar with a lot of those studies. How many of those studies, however, were 
were conducted during the spring? Because we're talking about body condition in the spring. Um, and so what do we know about that? Uh, differences in survival from spring through the breeding season um, as a result of differences in body condition? Well, we know that spring is a really important time um, for um, all waterfowl as they're getting ready for, uh, like we said, making these big movements and then also um, getting ready for, for breeding. Now, what we've known for uh, more recently from some research um, done by some really good researchers up north in Canada on snow geese is that they're able to look at band recoveries um, of snow geese and they can compartmentalize uh, mortality via um, hunter harvest versus natural mortality. And they, can, uh, they were able to segregate um, uh, survival by seasons. And what was really interesting and what um, is, I think, important for us to, to, to know is that more snow geese are dying of natural mortality than they are of harvest mortality right now. And so that, that should just speak to the, the impact of body condition on uh, mortality. So not necessarily not, or, or survival, right? Um, survival would just be the, diff- the, the opposite probability of the probability of, of dying. Um, and so we know that there's a, um, a high pressure on these birds, um, particularly during spring, and it's very likely that high mortality exists during spring, um, natural mortality on its own outside of hunter harvest. Well, Drew, this has been one of the meteor conversations that we've had. We've, we've discussed uh, some of the, the details probably at greater length than we have on some of our other, other podcasts. So we're going to try to recap for our, for our listeners here with respect to this group of hunter shot birds. And, and so tell us uh, again, what is it about them whenever we're harvesting them and the implications for that from a conservation perspective? What are we seeing with that? Maybe some of the big takeaways from this study are that because the light goose conservation order shoots a predominantly um, group of birds that are in lower body condition. And because we have good reason to suspect that lower body condition translates into lower survival, it means that the predominant group of birds that are removed during the conservation order um, are birds that have likely a much lower probability of surviving through uh, the spring migration anyways. And so that because natural mortality is high, a lot of these birds that are being removed uh, have higher probabilities that had they not been shot, they would have died likely anyways. Um, and secondly, if they didn't die, um, then it's much more likely that their reserves, their lipids and protein reserves would be much lower that they wouldn't be able to either one successfully breed um, or even make the decision to breed. Uh, they would just decide to take a gap year and take a break because they didn't success. They would have reserves ready to breed. And from a conservation perspective, if our goal is to sustainably reduce the population, um, then we're, our, our, our harvest is focused on the wrong subset of birds. Uh, we know that adult breeding females are the most important bird uh, to sustainably remove out of the population. And, and so what our data is showing is that not only um, are our harvest rates really low, is that the birds that we're focusing in on via removal through decoys are birds that are probably in really, really poor shape that either won't live um, or probably won't breed if they do live. This is a really interesting topic, and I find myself as a hunter asking the question, you know, is there something that I can do? If, there, if, the, if the 
group of birds that has a natural tendency to come into our decoys, and then hence that's the group that we harvest, isn't the ones, the, the group that we really need to be harvesting in order to reduce population growth. Is there something else that I can be doing uh, to help in that regard? Yeah, well, I think there's maybe two things. One is that I mean, our research shows that the birds that are shot via jump shooting uh, are in higher body condition than uh, decoy shooting. And, of course, people are going to go back and forth and, and have their uh, internal debates as to, to, to what's a, a more fun hunt, decoy hunting or, or jump shooting. Uh, but at least our data points to uh, stronger conditioned birds out of uh, jump shooting. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, decoy hunting, if, you, if you're going to do it, could focus on uh, picking out adults um, as opposed to juveniles or waiting to call the shot until birds are further uh, you have more birds moving into your spread. But I think more tangibly, um, recruit a friend. Uh, get somebody out who's never light goose hunted before, whether that be in the fall or the spring. Introduce them to the concept to the concept um, and how much fun it can be. It's just as a, as a hunting partic- a sport, particularly in the fall. Um, because the reality is, is that we need much higher harvest rates in order to uh, um, effectively reduce the population um, uh, via harvest. And I, I think the other thing that I might add is that um, and there's some other good research out here, too, that uh, you might be able to explore uh, and the listeners themselves with some of the work that's coming out of Canada. But we're seeing that the population of snow geese um, are responding um, to pressures that are outside of hunting, and they're beginning to decline because of changes on the breeding population uh, or the, uh, the breeding habitat conditions um, up further north. And so... Um, We've seen the population grow for a long time, but in the last five years, we've been starting to see a decline, and that might be related more to um, some density-dependent pressures that occur up on the breeding grounds. And so uh, it's going to be really interesting to see how effective the conservation order could be as the populations, if they continue to decline or if they stabilize again. Um, But we know right now our harvest rates need to be substantially increased to be effective for harvest to have a role in that population decline. It's interesting that you kind of landed where you did there. We've had a – we're sort of on a a, uh, a good run here with podcasts related to uh, light geese, snow geese and rosted geese. We've already had uh, Dr. Ray Alisoskis on a a couple of episodes and – we're going to have Dr. Vanessa Harriman on as well, and so we're going to have a series. Not a, uh, we're going to have a series of these episodes, all speaking to the the situation around uh, light geese. And so this is uh, just sort of a pretty cool uh, synergy of of conversations. We've learned a lot about this group of birds. We still have a lot to learn, but it's it's become one of the most heavily studied groups of birds, groups of waterfowl in North America. And uh, this is just another the, what you've presented and what you've learned is another piece of information that that's uh, really valuable in helping us understand what's going on with this population. So, Drew, we thank you for coming on and sharing your time with us. We thank you for your uh, for, for helping us understand your research and what you discovered. Absolutely. Thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to ask me about the research, and um, I'd, I'd love to be on another time. Absolutely. We will try to find a, uh, find a way to get you on. Thanks, thanks for being a, a part of the show. Yeah, have a great day. We extend a special thanks to our guest today, Dr. Drew Fowler with the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. As always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, the man behind the machine, who does a great job getting these podcasts together, edited, and then out to you, the listeners. And to you, the listeners, the most important part of this venture, we thank you for your time and spending that time with us on this podcast. Most importantly, we thank you for your support of wetlands and waterfowl conservation.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit www.ducks.org slash DU Podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside.